Grace to you and peace, faith family. If you will please turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Joy to the world, the day will come in which he will bring it all to bear upon this world. We're looking forward to that day, but until that day, we're stuck in a Genesis, a post-Genesis 2 world, yes? A Genesis 3 world. And if you've been with us uh, last week, you know that we are in the middle of a three-part series, our series in Advent, called Christmas in Genesis. What we are doing this morning is we are reflecting in the, throughout these, this season, reflecting on how this whole idea of Jesus coming in the first Advent, or the coming of Christ on that blessed Christmas morn, was the fulfillment of the promise of God to redeem and rescue us from our sin for His glory. And the last time we were together, we studied the very first announcements of the coming of this, He, from Genesis 3.15. And this would come, and this He would come and crush the serpent's head, while the serpent would in turn bruise His heel, whoever this He would be. And what we said was that from this point forward, throughout the rest of history, we would have been on the lookout for this He, asking how he would do such a thing. Who will he be? How will we know? Now, then for those who will come in the middle of the story, inside this history, we would also wonder how has he already come? How would we know he if he has already come? And here we are in 2024, and we're asking this question. Because if Genesis 3 is right, and we believe it to be, then has the He come? And if it is, who is He? Or has He not come, and are we still to be on the lookout for the He? Well, this morning, faith family, we're going to return to the book of Genesis. And what we're going to see is that as the wickedness and sinfulness of man and of angels reaches such an apex, that it causes God to virtually reboot this whole thing. Now, we discover that he doesn't start completely over. In other words, we discover that he doesn't come in and provide us with an entirely new creation. Instead, what he is going to do is he is going to rescue one man and his family. And by the way, this is a story that most of us have heard many, many times if we've been in church for any length of time. And what would happen if we were to read through this with this idea that this he that was promised, we would be asking now that God is going to kind of start this whole thing over, is this one the he? Is this the one that he has promised? And if he is the he, then now what? And if he is not the he, then what exactly does this man and his family mean for us? Now, as we said last week, for the sake of brevity, there will be large gaps of instruction, large gaps of information that will be, by necessity, left out. But what we are trying to do, ladies and gentlemen, over the past and over these next three weeks is to see where the promise of this Messiah would come as we look for Christmas in Genesis. So we are moving. Last week, we studied Adam's fall. And this week, we are going to study Noah's rescue. So we have the fall, and then we have a rescue. Genesis chapter 6, I will begin in verse 5, and we will read through verse 22, the remainder of the chapter. 
Turn with me to Genesis 6. I will pick up in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then, Noah, and then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a widow window for the ark and finish it a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. <clears throat> Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my, co- establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take it for yourself, some of Take for yourself some of all food which is inedible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and them, and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we have read your word. We ask your spirit to guide us. I ask that you be with your servant this morning, Father. I pray that those who have ears to hear, let them hear. God, I do pray that for us, those of us who are your children, that God, we would understand that Noah, as a type of what you have done for us, that sin has entered our lives, we deserve the wrath of a flood, and you have given us a way of life. Father, I pray that if there is one in here who does not know you, that they will, turn, they will come and turn to know you before it's eternally too late, before the flood of sin takes over their life, that they would see that you have provided the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come unto you except by him. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this time together. Bless us as we gather here. Let us be reminded that in all the things that have happened in this past week, in all the things that will happen next week, that the reason we gather here together this morning is to know who you are and what you've done. 
know who we are in light of that and what we are to do. But God, we are not here to be entertained. We are not here to be amused. But Father, we are here to be strengthened and encouraged and reminded of your goodness and grace. So Father, I pray that that would be impressed upon our hearts by your Spirit. And that because of that, God, we would live in faithfulness to it. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, as we come to this, um, you would not be remiss to understand that we have skipped a few verses. So what I wanted to do at the beginning of this uh, series, at the beginning of this sermon, is I want to basically tell you about the situation, where we have come from Genesis 3. Because if you don't know where we have come from Genesis 3, then you might come into this part of the story and go, man, I remember there was this serpent, I remember there was this curse, and I remember there was this promise. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of do a brief overview of the situation and then we're going to get into what we see here in this passage as we begin to look for Christmas in Genesis. So the first thing we have is the situation. Now this is not in our direct reading this morning, but it is located between where we left off and where we pick up. When we left off last, last week, we were introduced to sin, we were introduced to Satan, and then we were introduced to all of its outworking in the garden. Well... Y'all, a lot have happened since then. We have two chapters that puts on display the effects of sin in the world. And as you read those two chapters, you can begin to look at and see what the outworkings of sin is. And what we do, we learn that sin not only impacts us individually, but because sin impacts us individually, it will impact us communally. In other words, although sin is independent and in us, it does impact what happens to us. That's why, in all truth, your sin is our problem. My sin is our problem. Because my sin will impact you, your sin will impact me. And as I've said a hundred times, one of the precepts that we hold in our home and in our marriage as a husband and a wife is that I'm a sinner, she's a sinner, and we live in a sinful world. In other words, when I come to a situation and circumstance where there is brokenness and hurt, I can promise you that I've probably brought some sin to it, you've probably brought some sin to it, and the world in general has probably brought some sin to it. And that just starts us off on the right foot. Now, I'm not always good at that, by the way, because I am a son of Adam. And I always like to point the finger and look out the window before I look in the mirror. So we learn how sin impacts us individually and communally. I would tell you that having come through COVID and coming through, come through a pandemic, which by the way wasn't the first pandemic that this world has ever come to, although in our world we seem to think it is, the first pandemic, and I would even say the greatest pandemic to face all humanity, was not caught by viral means, but is rooted in the very place that indwells us, and it is in our heart. The first pandemic was the pandemic of sin. And we are still dealing with that cough. We are still dealing with that runny nose. So as we await what we have done, what we have been doing in in chapter 3, we would now be waiting. And if we were reading through this, this is why I love reading through the Bible in chronological order, especially the Old Testament. Because if you take Genesis 3 and that verse that we looked about, about this he that was coming, so what you would have had to put in your mind is, I'm looking for this he. 
I'm always looking for him. Is he going to come up? Is he going to arise? Would it be David's children? Would it be his biological children? Or would it come from David's genealogy? Where is this he going to come from? And that's the way you've got to read the Bible. You're always looking for this Messiah, this promised one who is going to come and save us. We would always be waiting and wondering about who will come that will crush the head of the serpent. We all must deal with the consequences, by the way. For there is one thing that even the most hardened atheist cannot get away from. It is this. And I have dealt with many an unbeliever. And if you're in here this morning and you, you are dealing with unbelief, I want to share with you, I have dealt with many of you. And I have, I have sat down with many, a Christian, many a non-Christian. Uh, a Muslim, I sat down with a Muslim in Uganda not too long ago. I sit down with Hindus and Buddhists and, and I've sat down with atheists and agnostics and all of them agree on one thing. And it is this one thing that they all want to find out how are we going to solve it and here it is. The world is not as it should be. Nobody disagrees with that. There is brokenness. Now, we have, different, we have different perceptions on the purpose and the reason for this brokenness or the, 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 where this brokenness came from. But there is not a person in this world who will look at it and say, well, this is exactly the way of the world as it should be. Everything's glorious. Everything's great. The reality of conflict and strife and separation, wars, sickness, death, it's undeniable. And so what we would have done is we've concluded chapter 3 and said, okay, what's going on? And then we open chapter 4. And quickly, quick, quickly, <laughs> quickly, we discover the evidence of our brokenness immediately. You stepped out of chapter 3 and you said, hey, God was gracious. He covered Adam and Eve with, uh, from their sins and he did some things in the garden. He promised us he, and then it doesn't take us a minute. It doesn't take us any time before we already have our first murder. And by the way, it was the murder of the righteous by the unrighteous. By the way, it was a murder that was attempted to be buried by a lie. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Liar. So we have the first murder. We have the progenitive lie that came from, I believe, his parents. And then we hear the seemingly self-flagellation of Cain. Listen to what he says in 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from the face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. No wonder self-pity is so utterly pathetic. Cain says, you have done something to me, God, that I can't bear. So, okay, Cain, why don't you try repenting and turning to God? No, 
I would rather wallow in my self-pity. I would rather have sorrow for the consequences that doesn't require repentance. Because I kind of like those consequences. We have the first marital distortion in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 19, Lamech took, him, took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, then the name of the other, Zillah. From, and that was never indicated, by the way. See, this is where we get it. And then we, li- we read about polygamy now from this point forward, and then we say, see, God's okay with polygamy. God was never okay with polygamy. This is descriptive, not, uh, not uh, imperative. It's describing what he did. We have the first sign of a man getting married to two women, and from this point forward, it will, de- it will destroy uh, uh, it will be continued uh, in throughout history. So we have murder, we have lies, we have the first marital distortion of polygamy, which was we were never supposed to have. We have the first act of vengeance in chapter 4, verse 24. It says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And we come here, and what we what we would be asking is, well, who was in chapter 3 that is now missing in chapter 4? In chapter 4, we have guy, we have people. In chapter 4, we have God. Who's missing? Satan. Why? Because we discover that now that we have been, we have bit the apple, and now that we know the difference between good and evil, and we have chosen evil, now that we want to be like God, and we have distorted truth, now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you this, we are quite capable of it all alone. We don't need Him anymore, necessarily, because we're quite capable of messing this whole thing up. It's as though as what is now happening is coming from us. And then, ladies and gentlemen, in chapter 5, we are giving a genealogical record. A genealogical record that, as you read, takes us through ten generations. Ten generations. So, get this. Do you know who your father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-great, Great, 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 father. Y'all see what I'm saying? This is a long time, yo. I often tell men that, you know, we are three generations from being utterly forgotten. So don't take yourself too seriously. You want me to prove it to you? Who was your great, great grandfather? I don't have a clue. I barely know who my great grandfather is. I don't know who my great, do I even know who my grandfather, yeah, I know who my grandfather is. Got that going for me, which is nice, right? So you have this idea that now we have 10 generations, so some time has passed. And it puts us right here in chapter 6. And what I want to do now is I want to move, so this is the situation we're in. We are 10 generations from Adam and Eve. Things have utterly broken. We, We have utterly demonstrated the reality that sin is now incorporated in our world. And now what I want us to do is look at the corruption. We see the situation. Now let's look at the corruption, which is going to be described to us in, chapter, in verses 5 through 7. Ten generations have passed, and, I, and what I'm going to do now is in 5 through 7 is I want you to see what the Lord saw, what the Lord sensed, and what the Lord said. What the Lord saw, what the Lord sensed, and what the Lord said. So what did the Lord see in verse 5? First it says that the wickedness of man was great, 
on the earth. It was a real, tangible display of man's depravity. And by the way, it was a real, tangible display of his depravity because and in light of his separation from God. Now he was separated from the tree of life, therefore he was going to experience death, separated from God due to sin and self, and now we have the ultimate reality of what the Lord senses. It is the sin of the hands. When our depravity is so evil that it leads to actions that are displays of our wickedness. You see, ladies and gentlemen, because God doesn't only see our hands, He also sees our hearts. And here it says, listen, it says that every intent of the thought of His heart was evil continually. So not only did God see in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually. So not only what was he doing evil, but the intent of his heart was evil. Not only did he see our hands, but he sees our heart. And I would even say that he sees our hand, our heads because it was intentional. So you get this, the head, the heart, the hands, God sees it all. Now this isn't a surprise, is it? Because that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the sin of the heart does. Sin of the heart reveals itself in the sins of the hand, which ultimately impacts the world around us. And we all need to understand this, because if we don't, we'll miss it, and we'll think we just have a hand problem. It's just a works problem. It's just, if we could just fix this, if we could just get a little bit better at this, and we never work on our hearts. And, and for many, they never work on their hearts because they can't see it. That we, we, we can't even see our own hearts. Because we're good at self-hiding our own sin. That's why we need people around us to help us. Not in an abusive way, but in a way that will bring us to Christ. Listen to what James said in, in James chapter 1. Listen, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Listen, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Satan does and can entice. Satan does and can lure. Satan is constantly on the prowl. But you have to understand, he is only tempting us with what already lies inside of our sinful desires. The picture that I often use when I'm, when I'm in counseling is one of, a, one of a, a, an apartment building. And behind each door is a particular sin. Or behind in each, each apartment building there's a particular group of sins and you've got a bunch of buildings. However you want to, uh, I think this is more like an in, infinitum kind of idea, but you're kind of getting the idea. So what Satan's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to knock on a door. Is that door available for you? You open it up, he puts his foot in, and boy, he's going to have his foot in that door for as long as he can. But maybe your temptation is not, Greed. Okay, he's not going to go to that door again, but boy, you let him find a door that's open and see if he doesn't come knocking. Is that the experience that you have in every day? 
Is that the experience that you experience? Because when you wake up in the morning, you seem to not be able to conquer this particular event. This one thing keeps coming up over and over and over and over and over. And you're going, what in the world? Oh, my ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you what. Satan is on the prowl and he knows the door has been opened before because you gave him the key. And now he knows he can always come back to that address and open the door again. That's why that fight is so real for you. And that is why, by the way, your fight is often not my fight. And my fight is often not your fight because Satan knows where he's going. But I want to tell you this. The only way, you've got to hear this, and I love this quote. The only way he can get in because the door is only open from the inside. It is by our own lust that he comes. He knows, he sees. Now, I do not believe that Satan is omnipotent. He doesn't have all power, nor do I believe that he is omniscient and he knows all things. But I do believe he's wise in a sinful way. He knows what you're tempted. I mean, this cat has had thousands of years of experience. I should call him a serpent. Although cats are not much different, right? I mean, come on. I'm kidding. For those of you who are cat lovers, it was a joke. But I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this going, okay, there's something in this that Satan knows he can come. And he knows, he's seen that look, men. He has seen that look in the eyes of men before and he knows what that looks like and he knows that he can come back to that door. He, is, he can watch and see what arouses you. He can he understand what is at the heart of you. He, he's seen women do what women do before, and he knows that he can come back with that same old ploy, that same old plot. You see, Satan doesn't have new ways. He has very old ways wrapped in new bows. Satan is the master at the, at the, uh, at the gift exchange. He is the master of the old gift exchange. You know what I'm talking about. We just did this in our, with our staff meeting the other day. He can take something that has been given to him, rewrap it in a new bow, and give it to somebody else. Y'all see what I'm saying? He's good at it. And that's what he's up to. And by the way, I want you to notice that, uh, that, uh, that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts was on evil continually. Every intent is evil continually. Every intent is continually evil every intent we were just speaking about this somewhat in elders meeting this morning about a situation in our culture ladies and gentlemen this is the level to which corruption and sin can dissolve so before you ask that question can it get any worse let me answer it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it can. It can get to such an extent that it will be said that the earth is filled with violence. The display of violence, by the way, is merely the outworking of our collective hearts. Unrestricted collective hearts. So when you see, ladies and gentlemen, when you see violence on the street, when you see violence happening in a world and hatred and anger and evil and these things, I want you to see this from the right perspective. The display of violence is the outworking of our collective hearts, unrestricted by what the psalmist declares as the bonds and cords of God's gracious restriction to sin. 
Some of you have told me of days that you have grown in, days in which I never knew. Some of you have told me in days when you could leave your keys in your car. Some of you have told me in days where, and some of you have lived in places where you could leave the front door of your house unlocked. I do have some nostalgia about my friends and I riding bikes around the west side. It did seem to be a different time. I lived in Mayfair, Montclair, Massachusetts area. Truman Arms, that, that area. And as I was being raised, I would remember that we would get on our bikes. And I would get on my bike and I would start at Massachusetts, let's just say Massachusetts for easy, easy uh, for grins and giggles. And then I heard that there was going to be a pickup basketball game at Pine Forest High School. And I would take my bike and I would ride down Massachusetts to Mobile Highway. I would ride down Mobile Highway to Longleaf, and I would get off at Longleaf and come to Pine Forest High School on my bike. And I was in middle school. Y'all, I can't even fathom that now. Some of you have told me that you were able to leave your keys in your car and it not get stolen. My car was stolen out of my driveway. And I don't live in a particularly rough neighborhood. I was told that some of you, it was able, that you were able to leave your door unlocked, your front door. Not the side door, the back door. I'm talking about the front, front door. I ain't never known that. We had a neighbor, we had such a strict neighborhood watch program in Mayfair that people would, would comment on it. I lived on Opal Avenue. We had a strict neighborhood watch program because somebody stole your stuff, all your neighbors would watch them. You hear me? They'd be just like, oh, yep, that's gone. <laughs> that was our neighborhood watch program. It did seem to be a different time. And here in this day, in this world, in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that the world is in continual evil. So we see that the Lord saw. Now let's see what the Lord sensed. Verse 6, and this is a passage that is unbelievable really. It says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now that's some theological challenge, isn't it? The Lord was sorry and he was grieved in his heart. This type of language often causes confusion in the church. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says in chapter 2 that the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts, without body parts or passions. This is called the doctrine of impassibility. Our main difficulty is because when we speak of passions, what we often do is we relegate the passions of man to God. And the doctrine of impassibility is really a subset of what we would call the doctrine of immutability, which is the doctrine that God cannot change or be changed. Impassibility would be God's inability to change or be changed in regards to his emotions. In other words, God doesn't change because he becomes emotional. 
Because if God did, we would have a God that would be always at the beck and call of his quote-unquote emotions. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't experience emotions, but it means that God is not changed by those emotions. So when God is angry or God is loving, he is not changed by them as though they do something to him. You see, he really loves and he really is grieved, but it's not changing him for who he is. So we don't get lost here. Just understand this, that God's sorrow and God's grief are not expressed in the absence of his sovereignty, but are expressed in light of them. God's sorrow is not because he didn't know, but it is a sorrow that is keeping with his knowing. One author gave a good example that helped me, and hopefully this will help you. When I discipline my children, I often feel remorse over the discipline. Okay? For those of you who are parents, you'll understand this. When I discipline my children, I often feel remorse over the discipline. But I... I'm, it's, I don't feel remorse because I disapprove of having to discipline them. I feel remorse that it had to come to discipline at all. You see, if I had to do it all over again, I would have still disciplined them because it was the right thing to do. So if I can hold these two emotions that I, I knew I had to discipline them, but yet I felt remorse... And if I can hold those two emotions as a mere mortal, then how infinitely complex would it be for us to comprehend this from God's perspective? And the point of this, and the point of this this morning, is for us to understand that the corruption of man had disintegrated to such a point that it would cause God sorrow and grief. But that's what God saw, that's what God sensed. And then what did God say? Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, beloved, this is sin's wage. This is sin's wage. Paul would write in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. We learn, ladies and gentlemen, that the means God will use to pass this judgment in verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of the water upon the earth. So the means of him outworking this idea of the wages that have been earned, which is death, would be a flood. Everything will perish. We know that God controls the wind and the waves. And we know that God can bring the waters upon the earth and flood the earth. But this ought to bring us, and by the way, it ought to point us in what I'm going to say in a moment. It ought to remind us of one who was sitting in the boat when the wind and the waves were choppy. Of a Jesus who, after calming the wind and the waves, was said, what manner of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? What manner indeed. Beloved, this is... If this is some mythological, metaphorical sort of story for us to pull out things, 
then all we have here is just a story. And this is what I hear about Noah all the time, even from people who claim to be believers. There wasn't a real ark. There wasn't a real flood. This is just a myth. It's just, it's just a metaphorical story telling us about God's struggle with evil and how God was going to restart. And then what we begin to do is we begin to treat it like myth and, 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 uh, and, a, and an idea. And so we begin to pull things out of it that we think we can quote unquote learn. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not what Jesus indicates. And you're going to see this in a minute. And that's not what I believe. I believe that these are real people. This is a real flood because this is a real God dealing with real sin. So I hope you get the picture. It's not as though God gets some pleasure from all this. Just like me with my children, I don't take pleasure in their discipline. But God cannot remain indifferent to it either. Because God's justice and mercy is always right. But there is no comprehending God's mercy without His justice. And you're enable, incapable of comprehending His justice without His mercy. God in His display of grace tarries while waiting for us to come to Him. But ladies and gentlemen, God has set a day when He will judge the world. And that world will be judged in Christ. So that's the situation. Now let's look at the provision. We know that he's going to come and he's going to flood the world and we turn to the provision in verses 8 through 22. I want us to remember that we are approaching 10 generations waiting for this one who will redeem us from our sin. So every person that comes forth will bring about the possibility. And here we are introduced to Noah. And the first thing we see is where he gets his name. By the way, and that's in chapter 5, verse 28. Listen to what it says. It says, Lamech lived 180 years, 82 years, and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. As a matter of fact, the very name Noah sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for rest. So what we would do is we would come to this part and we would say, Oh, Noah, could he be the one? We discover that he found favor in the eyes of God, which makes us think that maybe he is. He found favor. By the way, whenever you see this, he found favor. That's the idea of he found grace. You see, it's not that Noah was righteous and God was gracious to him. It's that God was already gracious to him and that's what brought about his righteousness. You see, I want you to get this. It's a grace found much like the grace found for us. It's a grace because it is undeserved and often totally unexplainable from our perspective. Because what some people are tempted to say is he found favor because of verse 9. Right? God, uh, in verse 9, these are the records of Noah. Noah was righteous, blameless in the sight of God. He walked with God. And because of that, he found favor. That, here it is, that beloved... 9 is the explanation of verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of God because Noah was righteous. So you have a choice to make. You can either think that he found favor because of his righteousness, or you can say that verse 9 is the result of verse 8, that the reason he was righteous was because he found favor. Now you ain't riddle me this, Batman. Did you find did you become right because God was gracious? Or was God's grace placed upon you because you were right? 
It's a very deep question. It's a question that we would say in our faith family, is, verse 9 is not an explanation of verse 8. Verse 9 is the result of verse 8. Because God was gracious, Noah was righteous and blameless. It said that Noah walked with God, which is a beautiful description, by the way. Think about it. That is the description of those who have been captivated by grace, who are now wanting to live right, and they are walking with God. Isn't that beautiful? This is exactly what we would expect. And when you go and you read the New Testament, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we have been called. Called by what? Called by grace. That they would want to walk with Him. See, the reason so many today don't walk with God is because they are not yet captivated by it all. That in spite of being in a world of such chaotic evil and wickedness, that God in His omniscient mercy would reach down and save a wretch like me. A man like Noah. And then Noah is instructed to build an ark of gopher wood. An, an ark so large, by the way, that it would fit three space shuttles on it from nose to nose. Four stories high. In verse 22, you know what it reads? It says, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Again, in chapter 7, verse 5, it's going to say, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. I, I need you to see the picture. Noah is a man who was saved by grace, lived in righteousness because of the amazing grace that God had placed upon him. And because now he is living in righteousness, he is walking with God in the day to day. Which Adam, remember, God was walking in the garden. And he no longer, and he came to them and he says, Where are you? And now here we have Noah doing this, and guess what happens? Guess what happens? Noah walks with God, and then he is obedient to him. Now, what those around him must have thought, we don't know. We don't know. And I have heard sermons about people talking about what people around him must have been saying. Y'all don't know what they were saying. I don't know what they were saying because it ain't included in what they were saying, but I can only imagine. What we do know is that they didn't pay attention and they did not listen to him. What we do know, as we will see, that they went on about their business. And we are told that only Noah and his family and the animals that entered the ark were saved from the wrath of God. And it is here, ladies and gentlemen, that God will come in and he will establish his covenant with Noah called the Noahic Covenant, which we are going to study next year. And this all reminds us that God's grace to save us sets us free to obey Him. And in our obedience of Him, it assures us the truth of our eternal life. So that's the provision. God comes in and He provides salvation for people who didn't deserve it. And by His amazing grace, He reaches down and He saves a man like Noah. Now, what I've heard is when I was growing up in, in, in some of the places in, in, in 
when I was younger, a younger Christian, I would come in here and they go, see, see, ladies and gentlemen, Noah was a righteous man. He found God's favor. And because he was righteous, he found God's favor. So that's what we ought to do. We have to be righteous to find God's favor. So then what I do is I spend the rest of my life trying to be righteous enough to find God's favor because things aren't going for me quite the way I explained. Hey, by the way, I got diagnosed with cancer. I, I must not have been righteous enough. Hey, I'm not making enough money to provide for my... Well, I must not be righteous enough. Hey, I'm not, I'm not seeing the blessing that other people... I must not be righteous enough. And I kept trying to work up my righteousness. I tried, kept trying to get to the place that I would just... God, if I just do enough, I can find your favor. And I was working myself to the bone. I was dying on the inside trying to earn God's favor. But ladies and gentlemen, oh, I'm here to tell you by testimony. Once I learned that I had his favor and then I could walk in righteousness, my whole life changed. My whole life changed. Wait, you're telling me that God's favor is upon me? That's why I walk in righteousness, not that I walk in righteousness in order to earn his favor? Oh, my goodness. You're telling me, my children, I tell my children, you don't have to earn my love. You have my love placed upon you. There is no earning my love. You have it. Now, out of my love, I want you to obey me. I want you to be, I want you to be obedient. I want, you to be, I want you to listen. I want you to have wisdom. And I am a flawed man, but here's with God, he is not flawed, and we can come to him and know this. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, and like I said before, I could preach and I could preach and I could preach some Noah, but I'm not going to do it. We have the situation, we have corruption, we have the provision, and where's the revelation? Some of you are going, where's Christmas and all this? Turn with me to Genesis 9.1. God was rescued. Uh, Noah was rescued by God. And then in Genesis 9-1 it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Have you heard that before? Do y'all remember when we studied back in Adam and Adam was created and God came to him and he says what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's almost as if God is saying, Hey, the promise I made to Adam. By the way, these two, Adam and Noah, these are the last two in which it pertains to all of humanity. Because after this, all covenants after this will be a particular covenant for a particular people. The Adamic covenant, all of us are in because all of us are in Adam. The Noahic covenant, all of us are in. All of humanity is in because we are all in Noah, because he was the only one who left. But when it comes to Abraham, Abraham is a particular man partaking for a particular purpose for a particular reason. Now, we're going to listen to this later, but I need you to understand this. So here we have God reinstituting the, Adamic, the original Adamic covenant, bringing it back to Noah. And he's repeating the covenant that he made with Abraham to Noah. But the Bible never indicates that Noah defeats the serpent. And what you're going to see as we finish chapter 9, that through his children's curse, that he doesn't redeem, but Noah himself ends up cursing his own children. So this would leave us at the end of chapter 9 going, well, Noah gets, by the way, the story, Noah gets drunk. He's laying in his tent. One of the sons come in and sees him 
naked, goes out, tells his other two brothers about it instead of caring for his father, goes tells his other two brothers about it. The other two brothers come in, cover him up. And then Noah wakes up, finds out what his, youngest son, what his, what his first son did, and then he tells him, you're cursed. And by the way, that's who the Canaanites become. So we end up, and we find out that Noah never, never defeats the serpent, and he ends up cursing and not blessing. He ends up cursing and not redeeming. And the second thing I want us to point us to is this. We would still be looking for this Messiah. We would still be looking for the one to come because we know after reading this, oh man, Noah, you get off the ark and you get drunk. The first thing you do is get drunk. Oh man. And you start cursing. So what I want us to do is to realize that Noah ain't the one. He's not that he. He didn't crush Satan's heel, uh, Satan's head, because we know this, because sin is still in earth, in the world. Now the second thing I want you to see is I need you to bear with me here a little because of our hermeneutics. In other words, the study, the way we study Scripture, the way we, we see Scripture. Because if my hermeneutic is correct and the New Testament is meant to bring clarity to the Old Testament, then we get an idea when we go to the New Testament and we read back into the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is new, it reveals new things, and then we can go back and see what was originally intended. So what I want us to do in order to see Christmas in Genesis, number one, we know that the, the he is not there. So who is the he? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also we went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Listen, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected unto him. So Noah, ladies and gentlemen, is a type. We call it typology. He is a picture. He's a picture of God's salvation that he would ultimately bring for us through who? God in Noah, one man would come and provide salvation through one way, which was an ark, through the wrath of God presented through a flood. All of these are pictures, all of these are types of what God was going to do through the man who would be the he. And who is it? Who, how do we know it was him? Because he resurrected from the dead. He arose from the death and now he is victorious. It is none other than Jesus. You see, ladies and gentlemen, in the Christmas in Genesis through the story and redemption of Noah by grace through faith. And Noah is a type of Christ. Noah is not Christ. He is a type of Christ. He is able to see that. Ladies and gentlemen, when you read Noah and then you read the New Testament, you ought to be able to say this, I found a better Noah. 
Jesus is a better Noah. Jesus is definitely a better man than Adam. He's a better Noah. And spoiler alert, he's a better Abraham. He's a better David. He's a better Solomon. He's a better you. He's a better me. He's a better. Jesus is better. You see, Noah was a type of Christ. The ark was a type of salvation. It was the only way by, wi- by, man, uh, by which man can be saved. And for us, here we are this morning and we study Noah because the story of Noah, we see what Jesus did for us. Beloved, we are also given the privilege of seeing Noah as a type of what Jesus' first advent promised to us in the second advent. What I'm saying is, we see Christmas in Genesis, but I want to remind you that Christmas in Genesis also leads us to another advent that is coming. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you see Noah, you're going to see not only my first coming, but you're going to see my second coming. Turn with me. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I'm ending on this. Listen. Matthew 24, verse 36. He is speaking of that day and hour in which he was going to come. Matthew 24, 36. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, His first coming through his resurrection, demonstrated that he was a better Noah. And in his second coming, it will also demonstrate that he too is a better Noah. By the way, I want you to notice that when Jesus says something about Noah there in Matthew, there's no illusion that that was a metaphor or a story. Jesus seems to think Noah is a real man. So I'm going to do this. If Jesus thinks he's a real man, I'm going with Jesus. As in those days before the flood, the people were just going about in their normal, everyday stuff of life. They weren't worried about Jesus. They weren't worried about the flood coming. Excuse me. How normal was it? Did you see what Je- how normal it was what Jesus said? Listen to the description that he said. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until that day Noah entered the ark. just like today you don't find it you don't find the devil's humor his satanic humor involved in all of it that Jesus would say that in the day of Noah they were eating drinking marrying and given in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark What happened on the day Noah entered the ark? Well, on that day, the door to their salvation was shut. And the wrath of God through the flood overtook them. And they perished. So I need you to listen to me, beloved. Jesus came on that Christmas morn as God's exclusive means of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. Jesus was the better ark. The better ark. At the end of this, between his first advent and his second advent, between his first coming on Christmas and his second coming on that glorious day, God will come and establish a covenant. God has come to establish a covenant of salvation for us. Back in Noah, I want you to understand, at the end of this for Noah, God comes and establishes a covenant with Noah. And did you ever think about it? See, this is this, the satanic humor. I don't find it funny. But at the end of this, all, this, this judgment, God comes and he establishes a covenant with Noah. Whose sign? What is the sign of the covenant of Noah? It's a bow. It's a bow to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh, all flesh that is on the earth. It was a bow of rain, but it was a bow. Gentlemen, I need you to listen to this. It was a bow. Go study the word bow in Hebrew. The word for bow is not some cute little metaphorical idea. The word for bow in Hebrew is the bow for war. And by the way, there's no arrow. It's just the bow. And where is it pointing? Where does the bow for war point and aim our desire? And I want you to imagine in our modern day how Satan would lead a group of people to choose the very sign of God's mercy due to his judgment against sin as their symbol to continue in sin and then have the nerve to call it pride. We have missed it. So every time you see that bow in the sky, I want you to remember that that is a war bow pointing toward the only one who is capable of enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. See, beloved, Christmas is found in the fact that God would come by grace and provide salvation from his just due flood of wrath. He would provide an ark for our salvation who would be his son. He would provide a man for our salvation who would be his son. And he would provide a way for us to be freed from the wrath that we deserve who would be the he, his son. He would become man to endure and conquer the flood that you and I deserve.
So the next time you sit back and you wonder, where is the he? As you begin to pick up in January, right? January is when all of you are going to start your new reading plan all over again, right? That's when we all, you know, we get that big gusto and, well, until about January 3rd. But at least January, maybe January 14th. By January 14th, you would have been in like Genesis 10, right? You would have been Genesis 10, 14, because you already missed a few days, but it's okay. So you're in Genesis 10. That had gotten you this far. But when you get that far, you would still be asking, who is he? And he is none other than Jesus. You please stand to your feet. Let us prepare our hearts now to come to the table of the Lord. If you're here and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, at the end of this service, I will be standing either over here or in the back, one of the elders, Rick or Nick, or Rick or Nick, Rick or Jeremy will be standing in the back, and we will be there waiting for you. If you have any questions regarding salvation, we would love to talk to you. If you haven't been baptized as a demonstration of that faith, we would love to sit down and talk to you. As a matter of fact, if you're a little intimidated by coming to an elder, I don't know why you would be, but if you were, then most people in this church would love to sit down and go to lunch and talk to you. So if you're not a believer in here this morning, the Lord's table is separated for those who call him Lord. So we would ask that you not participate. You're more than welcome to walk up. You're more than welcome to watch. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, we would ask for you not. If you are a believer in Christ, regardless of your church affiliation anywhere else, as long as you're in good standing with them and you're not under church discipline in any way, we would invite you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper with us. But can I say this to you? Church, the reason we come to the table is not because we bring our righteousness. The reason we come to the table is because we realize our need of grace. I know I need it. God knows I do. So before we come to this table, I'm going to take some time in just a moment for all of us to come before our great God and King, to bow our heads before Him and to thank Him for His grace and His mercy, and to pray to Him and ask Him for forgiveness so that we can be reminded that it's not on our works, but on His. So church, join with me as we go before God in prayer. Let us pray.